I'm Bill Fowler, associated with the New England Quarterly, and I'm here today with Mary Fuhrer, the author of The Revolutionary Worlds of Lexington and Concord Compared, an essay in the March issue of The Quarterly. And also joining us is Professor Robert Gross from the University of Connecticut, whose book, The Minutemen and Their World, now 36 years old, Bob, still stands as an extraordinary accomplishment in scholarship and fine writing. Mary, I'd like to begin our conversation by noting that in American history, Lexington and Concord stand almost as one word. We associate them, of course, with the events of April the 19th, and I think most people think of these two communities in New England as being joined in some way, almost identical. Mm -hmm. And yet, as the title of your essay would indicate, maybe they weren't. And I'm wondering if you could tell us briefly how were they different? Well, in short, they were both different and the same, which is why I think they had different um, approaches to revolution and eventually the same response. Concord, as Bob sh has shown, was really sort of the place to go in Middlesex County at that point. It was a cosmopolitan center. It, was, it had been founded where the rivers crossed. Uh, people came there for trading and market. The courthouse was there. It was, it was really a place to be. Lexington was a place to go through to get to Concord or to get in the opposite direction from Concord to Boston. It was a very small, uh, half the size of Concord. And it was a community that had uh, not encountered the, the more cosmopolitan advanced world that Concord had. It had also not encountered many of the issues that came with that larger, more cosmopolitan world. The issues that Bob shows fractured community in Concord in so many ways. As a result, Lexington was much more cohesive, unified town, and much readier to hear the message that was brought to it on the rhetoric of liberty and the religious uh, necessity to follow that rhetoric with action. So I see Lexington as a smaller place, but in its smallness, in its cohesiveness, more prepared for revolution than the complex, complicated world of Concord. Bob, your book, 1976, followed in the wake of a number of other community studies which in the late 1960s and the 1970s were particularly popular. I think of Grevin's work on uh, uh, Andover, uh, Zuckerman's Peaceable Kingdoms, John Demos's work on, on Plymouth. And I wonder, as you reflect now, 36 years later, and having the opportunity to read Mary's work on Lexington, how you uh, view your own work in that time period and what you think about community studies, colonial community studies, as we've come forward, I think, and how might you compare Concord to Lexington as Mary has laid out that town? Hmm. Is it really 36 years? It just feels like yesterday. <laughs> it does indeed. <laughs> My hair still is long. Um, <laughs> and you're better looking. <laughs> when I thought of up the idea of writing The Minutemen in Their World. I was a graduate student, but I'd also recently been a journalist. And so, and I'd worked for Newsweek. And my first idea was to write a book that would be ready for the bicentennial, actually in 1975. Um, 
and I would put the names of of conquered people on the themes that had been in Lockridge and Grevin and Demos and the other community studies. That is, I didn't have an idea at the time that I was going to be discovering something new, but as I set about the project, in fact, very quickly I realized that the startling fact was that the image of the Minuteman statue, one arm on the plow, the other with a musket, ready to leap to the defense of, of colonial liberties, um, was misleading. The Concord had taken an incredibly long time to get itself to be the Concord of the embattled farmers. And so when I designed the project, I realized the question had to be, that's paradox. It took them a long time to be embattled. But there was one other way in which the book was intervening in the scholarship that was really important. I figured that Concord mattered, Lexington mattered. Ask anybody who read Grevin's book on Andover, wonderful as it is, to name someone who lived in Andover. Ask someone to name, in Lockridge, to name someone who lived in Dedham, and nobody could remember, because they were only case studies. Whereas what happened in Lexington, what happened in Concord, mattered for American history. So it wasn't just a community study. It was a study that said, how can we explain why these farmers turned up in battle on April 19, 1775, and whether intentionally or not, as Emerson would retrospectively say, fire shot her around the world. That, in my mind, was always different from a community study. It was a community study with a, what I wanted to convey, a powerful narrative at its core. If I can just add Please. to that, too, um, I think that one of the reasons that uh, Bob's book has remained so popular for 36-plus years is that it wasn't just a community study. It wasn't just social history as social history was done then. It was social history as the context, but melded, wedded to biography and political history and a narrative. So that this is really more than just a community study. And I think that the longer it remains popular as it continues to do, the more people realize that it can't be really set aside as just clean community study. You know, you both mentioned biography and people. And it seemed to me, Mary, as I read your essay and, and Bob, your book, that there are two figures that emerge here in distinction, I think. William Emerson and Jonas Clark. Mm -hmm. uh, and I must tell you, Mary, I learned much more about Jonas Clark than mm -hmm. I had ever known before <laughs> and find him to be a rather remarkable person. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about uh, the minister. Yes, uh, although I don't want him to be the only remarkable person in Lexington. Uh, this particular article needed to be short and focused, but someday I, I really hope the stories of many of the other remarkable people in that town come out. And I think of right off the hand of uh, the young, recently married woman who came home to find her house sacked, but a British soldier housed in her bed and was so angry at that and at the fact that he had killed her cow, which was her major item of her marriage portion, that uh, she lit into him in such a way that he was terrified that she was going to poison him and required other people to test any food he gave her before he would eat it. But there, there are many people like that with unusual stories. But as for Jonas Clark, I, the reason in the end that I focused so much on him is that uh, 
well, I'll go backwards a step and say, like Bob, I wasn't expecting the story that I found. When I was originally uh, hired to, to do the research for this for the National Heritage Museum to reinstall their exhibit, they wanted to tell the story of everyday people in Lexington on April 19th. And I thought, okay, sure, that's fine. Fine, that's going to be the same story as Concord. Let's go about and find it. And was shocked to discover that it wasn't the same story and had been asking for a long time afterwards, why not? And although there are many reasons, I think in the end, the strongest one does come down, not to social conditions, but to Jonas Clark and his effect on the town. Because he was such an influential man, and for so long, and because he held such strong Whig ideas and interacted so frequently with John Hancock, who was his wife's cousin, uh, Sam Adams, and the people in Boston, he brought those ideas to Lexington, but, and this is what I think is really important, he brought them in a religious context. He recast them every week, three times each week, in sermons that told the people that their new Israel was being threatened and that it was their sacred duty to go out and defend it. And I think he prepared them for 10 years for that morning. And I think that's why he ended up being such a powerful force on that morning. Bob, was William Emerson as influential in Concord as Clark in Lexington? I don't think so. Partly because his very calling to the ministry by the town was contested from the start. And he was also young, struggling to win acceptance in the congregation that had been really splintered by the Great Awakening and its aftermath. And so Emerson took a good while to win over people. I mean, as late as 1771, he'd been called in 1765, he was um, still the object of attack. And James Barrett, who was running for representative to the, uh, the House in Massachusetts, was opposed by um, one Daniel Bliss, a man who had been bitterly at odds with Emerson for, in that election. That year, 1771, the opponents of William Emerson put on the front page of the Boston Gazette their own communication that said, William Emerson shows, you know, a immoral disregard for the truth, a criminal disregard for the truth. And so here you've got Concord's internal division played out in Boston, which shows a couple of things. One is how oriented people were toward the metropolis, that their awareness that local conflicts, in fact, could be metropolitan and, and, and provincial ones. So that by the time you know, Emerson emerges as a strong patriot, he actually, I think, had been on the streets of Boston the day of the massacre, or, or in Kinsman had been. But he's not really able to move to a, a militant position until set in the passage of the Coercive Acts and the invasion of the town by the British realm. Then he comes out and makes the same kinds of speeches as Clark. And, and here I really want to emphasize something that's there in Lexington from the Stamp Act, but doesn't really come out in the rhetoric in Concord till 1774. And that is what I think of as the identity politics of Yankee revolutionaries, where they say over and over again, our ancestors, by a great sacrifice of treasure and blood, came over and established communities of liberty and passed on to us intact this birthright of freedom. And it is our duty 
to resist any infringement upon it so that we can pass on that same birthright to our posterity. When you summarize that, what they're saying is, we are the descendants of Puritans, and our children will be the descendants of Puritans, and no one who is true to their core identity could ever truckle to crown in Parliament. That is a version of what we call identity politics. And Lexington was saying that instantly. It becomes a broad statement across Massachusetts Bay in the county conventions of 1774 and the town resolutions and because what's being taken away but the charter privileges. So it, it harkens back. That to me is crucial. And, and what I said in the Minutemen is it was so striking that the theme of birthright and inheritance was at the top of their minds when they were having such trouble as fathers passing on farms to their kids, when the sons and daughters had to move away, when the land was being splintered, when ecologically there were growing pressures, you know, uh, when, when the old morality was being doomed with a great rise in premarital pregnancies. Um, they're talking about passing on a birthright that by their very acts, day after day, they're forfeiting. And so you think, what were they, what was going through their heads every time they said inheritance and birthright when they knew inheritances were a problem? I agree completely. And in fact, I would add that I don't believe that this was in any way a self-conscious attempt to manipulate religion for political ends. I believe that they genuinely saw the world in these providential terms and believed just what Bob had said. In fact, I was recently reading one of uh, Jonas Clark's unpublished sermons, his evening sermon in September of 74, just as things were coming to their peak, his evening sermon to the youth, in which he quotes a passage of scripture that says, when the rising generation forsakes their God, he will destroy them. And then he goes on to give a very pointed lecture about their disobedience, their lustful behavior, their falling away will be the cause of their destruction by their enemies. And he sees this generational theme as playing not just that the older generation has an obligation to the youth, but the youth has an obligation to keep its part in this magisterial progression of, of God's plan. Now, we might want to step back for a moment because we've created everybody in Concord and Lexington as revolutionaries. Okay. Concord had a lot of conservatives, moderates, had a few loyalists. And one of the problems in the writing of the history of the American Revolution is we so marginalize those people. They barely get on the scene it's as if we've expelled them from the pages of our books, mm -hmm. the way in which they were driven to take refuge in Boston and then leave mm -hmm. with the British. And I think it's, it's important. That's where, again, I think the Minutemen really highlighted the divisions in Concord and the slowness of the town to move toward a militant position isn't because people forgot their ancestry as the descendants of Puritans. It was because there was a political logjam that was affected. And this Mary's work has brought home to me more sharply than I had realized before. Political logjam that was affected by powerful people in the town who were, who were friendly to royal government. Few of them became loyalists. Um, Daniel Bliss did. Um, but they were doing as much as they could to slow down the march 
to confrontation. And you can see this in, in telling ways. Mary shows that Lexington didn't just protest the Stamp Act in 1765. They didn't just pass the Braintree Resolves. They offered their own statement of fiery opposition in which they immediately invoked this ancestral theme. Concord holds a town meeting, apparently adopts the Braintree Resolves to, to protest the Stamp Act, but the town clerk never bothers to record the, the decision in the minutes of the town meeting, probably because he was conservative and feared that the British might um, yeah, retaliate. The thing I hadn't realized when I wrote the Minutemen and Mary's reading Mary's work heightened it. Uh, my sense is, is Conquer didn't meet to protest the Stamp Act until four days before the Stamp Act went into effect. You'd already had the riots in Boston in, in late August of 1765 protesting. Four days. Like, boy, that's going to make a big difference. <laughs> and in fact, if you start to track in common, Lexington opposes the Townsend Acts, Concord, and, and says, sign us up for non-importation. Concord? Townsend Acts? No sign they ever heard of it in the town meeting record. 1768, British troops come to Boston. There's a provincial convention. Concord and Lexington send delegates to that convention, but you wouldn't know from the Concord records, Lexington comes out with another fiery resolution. Um, Lexington is eager in 1772 to have a committee of correspondence and sign on with the Boston Committee of Correspondence. Not Concord. 1773, this is the thing that really got me reading Mary's work. Lexington, a week after Boston in November of 1773, um, denounces the Tea Act and, and opposes any landing of the tea. Lexington is, out, is, is signing on to similar resolutions and will hold its own tea party, burning tea on the town common. Um, Concord does not meet to adopt a resolution to oppose the Tea Act until a month after Boston Harbor has become Lipton Harbor. So, <laughs> yeah, what you say, and they, and, and they, not until September of 1774 does Concord actually establish a committee of correspondence. The contrast is stunning, and only when I paid attention to timing, not the substance of the resolution, but the timing of when you had the meeting, did I realize there are select men, representatives, moderators who are manipulating when they're going to issue the warrant for the town meeting. Mary, you know, every April 19th, as we uh, celebrate once again the events of that day, there's always the local argument about where the American Revolution started, and it pits always Lexington against Concord. And I would have to say over the years, it seems to me that Concord usually gets the upper hand in this discussion. <laughs> However, as you point out in your essay, and as Bob just remarked about, Concord gets dragged almost into this conflict, whereas Lexington is at the cutting edge <laughs> in protest and defiance. What is it about Lexington that makes it such a defiant place? A short answer to your question would be uh, it was that powerful combination of political and religious rhetoric seeds sown in a, a ground that had already been prepared both through social conditions and through the uh, minister's speeches. But in terms of this debate that happens every April 19th, it's a wonderful, it's a fun exercise to go and compare the depositions that were taken of the participants in 1775 in Lexington with the depositions that were taken at a memorial uh, of that 50 years later in 1825 of the same people. The earlier depositions almost universally 
say that the poor men on the town common in Lexington were just innocently gathering on their own town common, minding their own business when they were set upon by these barbaric British troops who came and mowed them down without any provocation whatsoever and shot most of them in the back as they were fleeing for safety. That, of course, was because their purpose at that point was to establish that they in no way provoked this war, that they did not start this. They were not the first to shed blood. Fifty years later, they had quite a different story about how they'd stood their ground with dignity and honor and courage and, and faced down the British, and so the first shot had been fired there. Probably conquered. I, now, I, I probably shouldn't comment on this. I'll just get myself into trouble if I say conquered should bear the honors in this one. But I think by the morning of April 19th, both towns were at the same place. It doesn't really matter where the first shot was fired. The difference, I feel, is leading up to that. Well, the first thing is Lexington's men standing on the town common, armed but not ready for battle as the British troops came in, were doing what the Provincial Congress had asked them to do, to form an army of observation. Now, the question still remains, if a 200 men or 40, 70 men are standing, holding weapons, as a large contingent of redcoats marches into their town. What are you thinking? Mm -hmm. How does anybody really anticipate that an armed force of provincials looking hostilely at the British troops marching onto their town green. How is that going to avoid a conflict? Especially since any attempt to continue on their way to Concord would have exposed their flank. Uh, exactly, which attack. was why Pitcairn says, disperse ye rebels, disperse, to get them to drop weapons, because otherwise, as Mary just said, their flanks exposed. So it seems to me that the very effort on the part of the colonists to say, we were innocent. This was, as would be said in a month later's broadside, bloody butchery by British troops, is is hard really to credit as, as, as a serious position. And any critical reader would say, what were you thinking standing there? Now, the really interesting thing, and I've only just been paying attention to it, teaching a course at the University of Connecticut on um, historian's craft, and we've been reading newspapers and looking at the accounts in the Boston Press of Lexington and Concord. And what hadn't hit me is that the newspaper, until now, is that the newspaper accounts don't actually make a big deal about the confrontation at the North Bridge. They do not focus on that as the signal moment of the beginning of the revolution. In fact, the earliest accounts simply say a conflict broke out there and that, that's it. The real emphasis is on the battle road the conflict on the way back. And that's particularly interesting because this then becomes a report of a resistance on the part of the entire countryside from every Middlesex village and farm, as Longfellow would have it. And that's exactly the theme 
of Edward Everett's 1825 speech at the Jubilee of Lexington Concord. Now, it's understandable that Everett would say that. He was the congressman from Middlesex County. So when he makes the speech, he says, this was not a day of Lexington or of Concord. It was for all of Middlesex. You can see how politically shrewd it was to make that speech. But it was also, in fact, true to some of the early newspaper reports. I was stunned at the way in which Emerson and the monument in Concord at the bridge have created for us the notion of that as the symbolic and signal transformative encounter when it's really the rest of the day. I love the way Bob says, what were they thinking? And I have often wondered in this process myself. And I think it's interesting to note that when they heard that the British were on the road, the men, of course, gathered on the common. The women, uh, in many different reports, they show the women gathering their children, taking all their valuables that they can hold, hiding them, and then fleeing with their children into the woods into the countryside. So they were expecting something violent, something untoward to happen that morning. And, and perhaps because of the great experience these Middlesex towns had had in the French and Indian War, and they were aware of the potential barbarous activity of, of British soldiers, but they were expecting something terrible. The irony is, if you read General Gage's circumstantial account, he views the whole thing as a tragedy that was utterly unnecessary. A few rude, rash men fired weapons on the British troops who lost control of their discipline temporarily, but they'd come with strict orders not to injure anyone, simply to get the military stores and then return. And yet, from that is going to come this great battle and war. The colonists put this forward as an inevitable confrontation because of the conspiracy against liberty they saw. There's poor Gage. He's had these orders to try to restore order, try not to start a war. He's given everybody um, commands, and he ends up with a disaster, and he's got to explain it somehow. But it's so poignant, I think, to read his account and to see him trying to attribute it to accident. In fact, if we're going to blame Lexington on anyone, it's Paul Revere's fault. Because when Paul Revere was captured on his ride and did not, despite myths, make it to Concord, when Paul Revere was captured to perhaps put the fear of God in the British soldiers who had captured him, he said, there are 500 men on Lexington Common awaiting you. Of course they were prepared for battle. And so Revere, in a way not only carries the alarm, he may be the guy whose warning meant to deceive actually provoked the state of mind mm -hmm. that led the British troops to lose control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that irony. In the same way, as the British approached, they heard William Diamond beat the call to arms. They know the call to arms. So as they approach, they're half a mile away, they hear the call to arms, they believe we're facing a battle. In attempting to defend themselves, the colonists almost made it inevitable that they would be attacked. If we think about the period from the closing of the port of Boston in June of 1774, let's call it the Massachusetts Spring that goes through June and then in, you know, an extended spring through the summer and fall. 
you've got, you know, the taking down of the structures of royal government outside of Boston. And you've got the establishment of alternative uh, foci for loyalty. P towns are sending their tax money to the Provincial Congress. You're having know, a revolution taking place at the same time as nobody's naming it, or I should say, few people are naming it, few people are owning it, and and that's all going on, and then what do you have? You've got these British troops, recently, some of them recently sent to Boston, some there a little bit longer, sent out. Look at how they went crossing the Charles River, as you say, getting all wet, in woolen clothes in a cold April night, you know, m doing that long march with all its delays. And march and hearing bells ringing through the countryside, hearing William Diamond's drum, knowing, in fact, that they're seeing a population of hostiles. You know, we're thinking now about other American interventions abroad mm -hmm. and going into villages in the dark of night, knowing that the locals view you hostily and you don't know who you, whom you can trust. A Massachusetts spring and an invading army against local hostels. This is a story with continuing resonance. It's also a story of where a central, powerful government responds to a political crisis with force uh, and uh, eventually fails. I'm quite curious about Lexington and Conkin, inasmuch as, as both of you point out, uh, this in society and demographics, uh, economy, they're quite similar. Uh, Yet, clearly, they seem to go, if not in different directions, they, one goes in an accelerated direction. And I'm wondering about this in the context of social history. Uh, always this sort of going back and forth, uh, about social history and the causes of the American Revolution, or are we more akin now? Are we coming closer to agreeing with Bernard Balin about the ideological, about the political uh, origins of the American Revolution, Ed Morgan's work? And I'm just sort of wondering, wh where do you think we stand on that movement back and forth about the ideology and politics versus social elements? And what do Lexington and Concord tell us about that? I think that social history has come a long way from the time when Bob's work could have been criticized by uh, Professor Henretta for not including enough numbers in the text. <laughs> uh, I think we've we've reached a, a much more nuanced understanding of the contextual richness of, of social history and how it helps us see why people would be receptive to the political, the ideology, the religious influences and why they would respond at a certain time and in a certain way. But I'm curious to hear what Bob has to say. Well, I think we could take a more radical stance on this historiographically. And then it would be something like this. First, let's take the comparison between Lexington and Concord. I think Mary's emphasis on the social and religious and political developments aim really to come to a particular point, which is to look at the social sources of unity or disunity. And so she reads the Minutemen as telling a story about how the fracturing of the town as a result of the forces for inequality, for division of, of loyalties, disables it from taking a quick, effective, collective response to British policies. By contrast, she sees Lexington, for all its sharing with Concord, as still being smaller, simpler, more egalitarian in terms of a shared way of life, so that people can act more quickly. And the leadership of Jonas Clark can overcome obstacles that William Emerson's can't so easily. I would have put my emphasis a little differently. Now, I think that what the Minutemen shows is 
of the problem of authority in society and authority connected to the ideology of patriarchy, of ranks in order, of hierarchy uh, in 18th century society. And what I meant to get at in the Minutemen, I, I do think this is one reason why the book may have lasted, is that the question isn't whether people oppose taxation without representation. The question isn't whether they oppose British enforcement measures. Lots of people who became loyalists were opposed to those developments. The question is whether you would put your principles and ideas into action by challenging authority in a dramatic and ultimately violent way. Your willingness to do that seems to me to be crucial. So that's the first point. I would want to stress then why did people in Concord finally come together to resist authority? And the argument becomes what Mary said, the impact of the coercive acts, the invasion of towns, the threat to local autonomy. Though in my argument, they're losing control of the town and the British threat comes to symbolize all the ways in which the town is losing a hold of its familiar life. So that would be the first way I could bring this together. But the second is the more radical one. So two towns with very divergent responses and in, in invocations and mobilizations of opposition Whig ideology in the Anglo-American tradition, but lots in common socially and economically well, maybe we should conclude that we don't need a social historical account of the coming of the revolution. Maybe, in fact, ideology is key because we can't show a very clear link between the social circumstances and the speed or slowness of the adoption of an ideological framework. So I think people who once had great doubts, as Bernard Balin once said, about those mysterious social strains that historians are always trying to invoke to explain the revolution, could look at Mary's article in my book and say, hmm, maybe we should go back to stressing the transit of political ideas from London to Boston and Philadelphia and to the countryside. Uh, I wouldn't like that very much at all if they come to that conclusion because I'm waiting for the 50th anniversary edition. <laughs> you know, it, it, to argue against people who might draw that conclusion, I would say that to me, the strongest thing in talking about Lexington and Concord is not that they had differences ahead of time, but that they came to the same conclusion. And personally, I think that was grounded in the fact that both of these were still agrarian societies who very much believed in the ideal of the independent property-owning yeoman farmer as the person who is self-determined and they felt that was under threat whether it was under threat from debt or ecological conditions or king's taxation it was under threat and i think they focused on this common enemy and those are many of those reasons that they came to agree on the same course of action, right. I think, are social. And the people who were most emphatic about delaying a militant response to British policies were those cosmopolitan leaders in Concord who were most closely tied to royal government, who held positions as justices of the peace, who were part of the court system. And 
one of the key things I discovered in researching Conquer is how many people actually got extra income by virtue of connections to um, being a beetle in the court or some lower level official, but you're a, a relatively poor person or someone with modest income. All those extra fees and the like matter, militia uh, officerships and the like. So Conquer's cosmopolitanism compared to Lexington meant a much greater entanglement of people in royal appointments and gave people material reasons not to want to resist British policy. And, and actually, that point leads to something that's been running through this conversation, but I think I would want to say here, and that is, I didn't just do a community study, and, and Mary just doing a community study. We're actually doing studies of how these local communities became entangled with the wider world. So is at the same time, these are social histories of how the global and the local come together. I think it's rather interesting, Mary, that as you point out, that while these two communities moved at a different speed, they did come to the same conclusion. And Bob, as you pointed out, that conclusion was resistance, was action. Uh, and I suppose that means that we can still celebrate Patriots Day, and we can still debate whether the revolution began in Lexington or Concord. But I want to thank you both very much for participating in this conversation. Thank you indeed. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information on the New England Quarterly or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.